Welcome to Musicians versus the World. I'm so, so pleased to introduce my guest, Bruce Adolph. He is a world-known composer and author of many books about music. He's a resident lecturer and director of family concerts for the Chamber Music Society at Lincoln Center. He's composer in residence at the Brain and Creativity Institute, founding creative director of The Learning Maestros, artistic director of Off the Hook Arts Festival, and every week he dazzles audiences on his national radio game show, Piano Puzzler, that he hosts with Fred Childs of Performance Today. So Bruce, thank you so much for being here with me today. My pleasure. So far, so good. <laughs> good. Well, before we get started, I just wanted to mention that the thing I love about your work and the reason I really wanted to interview you today was that whenever you are doing anything, be it piano puzzler or you're breaking down a Beethoven quartet or teaching little children about solfege, wearing a funny hat, whatever it is that you are doing or even writing music, all of your work has this just innate sense of wonder and optimism and just so much vitality. And I absolutely love that about everything that you're doing. And it's serious artwork and you're so talented and you have every right to be, you know, a little overly proud of yourself, but you never seem to lose that sense of wonder. And I'm just wondering, have you always been that way or has that come with time as your career has gone forward? Um, well, I think the only way I can answer that is that I don't think about myself and my career as much as I think about music and the projects I'm working on. So whatever it is that I'm doing, I'm involved in telling a story and that's always uppermost for me. And I, I get involved in the project. I love collaborating with people and rehearsing. So it's also an incredible privilege and, you know, to live a life like this. So I never forget that. Um, I, I, I guess the sense of wonder is something I try to retain from childhood. I, I shouldn't say try, but I, I know I have been called by various people the eternal child, you know, and they, I think they mean it nicely. <laughs> um, and, but, you know, the world is wondrous. And it is, it is, I think, part of how I think about things is to wonder how they work. I mean, look, we, I, there's so much I don't know. I don't know how my cell phone works, um, really. Uh, I'm not sure how it is that we can have this conversation technically. It's amazing. And there are people who understand that. I'm always cognizant of the fact that I know what I know about music, but there's so much that I take for granted that I don't know. And I remember when my daughter was seven, she's 22 now, I took her around the house and because she had said, um, is there such a thing as magic? And I said, well, let's walk around the house and you tell me what do you think might be magical. What's the most magical thing in the house? And she said, the sink, because when you turn on the faucet, water just comes out of there. And where is it? And where does it come from? And I started to explain it because I, that's not that complicated. But after a while, it hit some complications. And I realized everything is so amazing, you know, and it really is wondrous. So thanks for bringing up the word wonder. I, I appreciate it. You started a very young age with music and you had a very strong talent even when you were a little child. Can you kind of talk a little bit about how you got to where you are now? Yeah, well, I, when I think back to the very beginning, one of the first influences was Linus 
of the Peanuts cartoons because I just liked the fact that he had a bust of Beethoven on his piano and that he was always playing the piano. And I, I think I identified with him. And I did get uh, a toy piano first. That's what my parents bought for me. And because I was six, I guess, when they got me the toy piano, and I didn't want a toy piano. Um, mm-hmm. And we had a little parakeet at the time. And if, within a year or so, they got me a, a decent piano, a, a little Baldwin Acrosonic. And a few years later, we ended up also with a larger bird as well as a larger piano. I still have the same bird that's a parrot. Oh. <laughs> So we got it from the small bird and the toy piano to a full-size parrot and a grand piano, eventually a grand piano. Um, but basically, um, I was very turned on by first Linus, then Leonard Bernstein, and Victor Borga. And I, for me, it was all one thing, which is the, the conducting and composing and lecturing that I saw from Bernstein and, and um, the humor from Victor Borga. And it blended together with Danny Kaye for me as well. <laughs> And also my parents' record collection, which was mostly folk dance music from around the world. Mm. But it also included some classical music. Um, Mozart, I remember one of the first classical recordings I ever heard was Mozart, the clarinet concerto and the clarinet quintet with Benny Goodman, of all people, and the Budapest String Quartet. I just I can remember the cover of the whole thing. I played it over and over and over. And they had some Aaron Copland. And um, they also were into theater, and we went to a lot of theater when I was little, and also some opera. So I saw The Consul by Minotti when I was maybe nine. I saw um, The Marriage of Figaro when I was 10 or 11. So I, I was just pulled into that world from the beginning. And I guess, you know, parents have a lot to do with what is encouraged. They have everything to do with it. And the arts were just part of growing up. I mean... My father quoted Shakespeare all the time, and uh, I did that for my daughter, who now knows the complete works of Shakespeare better than I do, I think. And uh, it was all together. So I studied various instruments. I took piano lessons. My first piano teacher told my parents I had no talent at all. And the reason for that was that um, when I was six, they didn't know how to find a piano teacher. He was not that clean, and he smelled of uh, what I realized was alcohol later and cigars. And he sat on the bench next to me and I did not like him. And he knew that I, I didn't like him. So he told my parents I had no musical ability. And they figured out very quickly, you know, that he was a problem. And they also knew that when he was there, I didn't play very much. But when he left, I could pick out tunes that I heard on the radio and I improvised without any music lessons. So they knew he was yeah. wrong. And eventually they got me a, a fantastic teacher when I was seven. We had a great relationship. And many, many years later, I got her a job at Juilliard. So I paid her back. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so you're probably her favorite student. I was her favorite student. Yeah, she, she recently died at age 90. But until that time, oh. we, we were very close. Oh, and so you were improvising from a very young age, too. Did that kind of just blossom into composing formally? Yeah. I mean, I think improvisation was just normal. I mean, I, nobody was stopping me. And I, I guess in a funny way, because my first lessons weren't very satisfying, I had to improvise because I was trying to have fun at the keyboard and, and my first teacher didn't give me anything to do. No. So, <laughs> so like, I, I'll just make it up. <laughs> yeah, whatever I want. And then when I improvised for my uh, good piano teacher, Eleanor, she always encouraged me to improvise at the beginning of every lesson. And she never said anything other than, whoa, or wow. And then, because she didn't improvise herself, yeah. And then, we, then we worked on on learning to play the instrument, 
And eventually she helped me get a composition teacher. So I had my first composition teacher, I think I was 12. Okay. And so that was very different. So then when you had the composition teacher, they were able to guide you and how to take that improvisation and, and give it some structure. Yeah. I, I mostly needed holding back, uh, oh. you know, because I just, as soon as I understood how to write things down, I was writing things down all the time and improvising all day long and writing down little bits of it. And what I had to learn to do was to slow down, not, not, um, speed up or do more work. I had to slow down and focus so that I actually did finish pieces. And that actually stayed with me. My first year at Juilliard when I was 16, I was studying with uh, Vincent Persichetti. Oh. And he actually said to me once, he said, you better slow down and, and write longer pieces. You want to end up like me? He was worried that I was going to be somebody who was not self-critical because he suffered from that himself. He wrote some great music and some mediocre music and some kind of trivial music, and he got it all published and all played. And very little is played now. And I think the reason is there's just such a vast continuum from weak pieces to strong pieces that people don't know even where to look. And he wanted to make sure that didn't happen to me. So that was a, our big discussion was slow down and focus. That kind of goes into the topic that I wanted to talk with you today, um, because one of my favorite music books, honestly, is your book, The Mind's Ear, oh, um, Exercises for Improving the Musical Imagination for Performers, Composers, and Listeners. And I just love this because I think I am more along the lines of your second piano teacher, the one you liked, that I'm just not an improviser at all, and I've never really felt the freedom to do that. Um, I do like to write music and I, you know, just on my own, but to sit up and improvise in front of somebody is just not in my comfort zone at all. And you have so many amazing and fun exercises in here that take the pressure off where you can just explore. Exactly. And so my question to you is what exactly is a musical imagination? Okay. Well, I'm going to answer that, but first I have to tell you the timing of this is amazing because oh? a new edition of the book is coming out in July. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. The, <laughs> the third edition is coming out, uh, Oxford University Press, Mind's Ear, sometime in late July. And uh, I added a lot more improvisation exercises to it. Oh. Some of them are based on improvisation comedy techniques, which are usually not applied to music. And it's kind of fun to do that. And it's all about storytelling. So the musical imagination is basically the ability to form sonic images in your mind without there being live music, just like any kind of aspect of imagination that you're in your mind without your other senses, you can hear music and imagine music. It's all about memory too, because the way we imagine is that our memory is either purposefully manipulated or it's confused. You know, when somebody can't remember something, they should think of that as imagination. It's more positive. You know, like you remember it wrong. Well, you, you have a big imagination. My imagination is actually, I know that I have a particular kind of almost problem with it, which is if somebody, I'm very suggestible, let's put it that way. Just the other day, a friend was over, a recording engineer, and he said, did I ever tell you I had a, this big dog recently, that he got a new dog? And I immediately remembered him telling me all about this dog. And I, and then I said, oh, you mean that huge black dog? And he said, no, 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 it's not black, it's brown. 
And he said, you know, I don't think I told you. I said, well, maybe you didn't. But when you said you did, I started to remember it because my imagination and my memory all messed up, you know, <laughs> it happens, <laughs> which is a good thing for creativity. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not so good as a, a witness in a murder trial, but it's fine in creativity. <laughs> <laughs> Dan, do you notice that, um, that children tend to have less inhibition when it comes to imagination and creativity than adults do? Oh, yes. I mean, I think imagination is a natural human thing that all children have. And it's our job as adults to encourage that. And of course, what happens is it does get a little bit constrained, often by school. And that usually happens with tests. And when your imagination or even daydreaming is considered not a good thing to do. And of course, it it isn't always a good thing. But daydreaming is a great ability. You know, if you can daydream at the appropriate moments and follow your daydream and remember it and write it down. You might have a new story or some great ideas. there. Um, so yeah, as we grow up, we lose some of the ease of imagination that children naturally have. That's true. So it needs to be cultivated. Mm-hmm. And so for old timers like myself, you think that with these exercises, we can tap into that imagination that has probably been you know, tested out of us a little bit. I love that you're calling yourself an old timer. That's hilarious. Anyway, <laughs> but um, yeah, we have to tap into it. And I think the Mind's Ear book, it, that's what it's all about. It's, it's, it originally started at Juilliard in the pre-college where I taught for years. And I felt that a lot of the really excellent young musicians there spent a lot of time practicing and learning repertoire. And they didn't spend enough time just having fun with their instrument improvisationally and being creative. And I found that after a few exercises, it was not hard for anybody, really. It, it, it helps to have other people do it with you and to do it for a short time in a dialogue with someone, or it's good to have a leader. You know, I know the minds here, you can use the book on your own, but it's actually more fun in a workshop mm-hmm. with somebody helping you do it. The new version of the minds here has a couple of exercises based on the comedy routines of Nichols and May. Um, now, I don't know if you know them, but when I grew up, they were huge. Well, that's because you're not an old timer. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, but Mike Nichols, the director, who directed like 50 major motion pictures, okay. and Elaine May, they used to be a comedy um, team. And they were very, very popular in my childhood. And they started as improv comedians. And they were part of the original group that became the Second City and which led to things like Saturday Night Live and all of that. Mm -hmm. And one of the exercises they did, they did in front of an audience, they would say, give us a first line. And somebody would say whatever they wanted. Like, um, uh, I understand you have a giraffe. Let's let's Mm -hmm. say that's the first line. And then they say, and give us a last line. And somebody will say, "Um, I live in apartment 2B. I mean, they have nothing to do with each other. Uh-huh. And then they say, give us a style. And somebody will say, make it sound like a Jane Austen novel or Charles Dickens or Shakespeare. And they would just do it. you know. Mm-hmm. And of course, some of it worked, some of it didn't. But because right. we knew what the last line was, when they got there, you knew it was over. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it usually had so many brilliant moments that people went crazy for it. Then what they did, though, is they, they kept recordings of their improvs and they took the best moments and created new scripts, which they then performed that way. So it's exactly like composing, which is you get certain ideas, certain little technical things you want. Maybe it's a, 
you're, you're imitating a style or you're using a theme that you wrote down for some other reason, or maybe it's somebody else's motif and you improvise and improvise, and then you select and reject. And it's that selecting and rejecting that comes down to composition, obviously. Mm, yeah. And that actually leads to one of the questions that I had, because I think the big thing that when it came to improvising, the big thing that always stopped me was I was, I would think, well, is this good? Is this not good? Like, how do you even know? So mm -hmm. what, so you've got, you may have like an hour's worth of improvising and maybe there's just one really good idea. Well, how do I know where that one idea is? Yes. Well, that's a great question. And there's no exact answer because what you need to cultivate is your um, trust in yourself. Um, mm -hmm. And you usually have a little inner voice, you know, we all do that says that's corny or I've heard that before or this, I like this. And when it says I like this, keep that. I, I like to think of it, and I, I think you know from the mind's ear, I usually describe this as dreaming and thinking. Mm -hmm. And the dreaming is when you let yourself improvise and you don't ask any questions. You don't say um, this is not original or this is not interesting or I'm, this is repetitive or, you know, you don't criticize yourself. If you criticize yourself in the dreamings, and it's awake dreaming, obviously, right? You criticize yourself while you're having this awake dream, you're going to stop. But then, when you're done and you look at it, you need to pretend in a way that you're someone else. That's the thinking process. It's a great game. Is you look at what you wrote down and you pretend you are a critic or a teacher or a friend or or you can even pick a real person that you know. And let mm -hmm. them critique it. And you might, by removing yourself from it and playing that game, you might be able to um, make all the right decisions. But we know from neuroscience that humans cannot make any decisions without emotion. It's not possible. The brain has been studied enough to know that you may think you're making a very objective decision. And I guess if you're dealing with numbers and statistics, you probably can. But in almost every other way, like, is it time to eat? Should I get up and do something? You don't ask yourself these questions, but all your decisions are based on a whole series of emotional things. Mm -hmm. And there have been studies of people with various kinds of brain damage who had all their reasoning powers, but they had some emotional issues that were, the emotions were not functioning well, and they couldn't make any decisions, Oh, even though they had all their reasoning power, because the decision needs an emotion. So when you're looking at music and you're trying to figure out what's good, the main aspect of your decision-making process is how you feel about it. Mm -hmm. You know, that's why yeah. we need to trust those feelings. And I would say when I do that, I know I also might make a mistake. I might think this is my, I love this. And then tomorrow I might say, no, I was wrong about that. But I try to go with the thing that speaks the most, that has um, the most profile and the most energy and the most clear purpose. Mm -hmm. Now you compose for many different things. You compose for children, you compose for art music, you compose for your, your radio show. Is that process all the same? Um, the process is similar, but you know, when I'm writing in the style of Brahms and using a Beatles tune, it's a little different. <laughs> <laughs> That's a little different, but that right. is fun. Uh, it really is fun. And it's not as different as it sounds because I wouldn't be able to do that if I didn't immerse myself in Brahms's vocabulary and his, his um, way of thinking. So I think with the piano posers, I've used about 35 composers now. Mm -hmm. And 
whenever I do it, I think very clearly about the music I know of theirs, and I might study a score right before I start and sort of get in the zone. And I feel like an actor playing a part, you know. Right. I, I pretend I'm Brahms, so I never think I am imitating Brahms. I think I am Brahms. And oh. that change, that's a really good mindset, you know. Right. Right. And so for the listeners, what you're talking about, The Piano Puzzlers, that's the radio show where you take a popular tune and you rewrite it in the form of a famous composer. And then the contestant calls in and tries to guess not only the tune, but also the name of the composer as well. Right. And I've been doing this, believe it or not, uh, this is the 19th year. Is it really? Yeah. So 2022 is the 20th anniversary of Piano Puzzlers. Wow. Yeah. Are you going to do like a celebration? I think we are. We haven't figured out exactly what to do yet, but uh, public radio people, we're all sitting around trying to figure out how to have a party. (laughs) That that includes all our listeners, of course. But when you're doing your own things, for example, what was the piece that I just loved? I wrote it down. Oh, this is I Too Bleed and Hope for Beauty. Oh, thank you. I, yeah, just that was just such a lovely piece, and I loved listening to it. And that was a that was a tribute to a specific person, a st- specific story. Do yes. you, can you go through the composing process of that one? Yeah, well, that's the story of Alma Rose, who was a famous violinist, and whose father was a famous violinist, Arnold Rose, and whose uncle was Gustav Mahler, mm-hmm. and so she was part of the royalty of the music world in Vienna and Europe in general. But she was also Jewish, as were the, all of the people I just mentioned. And during the Nazi period, um, she ended up in Auschwitz. And mm. she, because of her musical ability, she was able to lead what they called the Auschwitz Women's Orchestra. It was not an orchestra because there's only about nine people. Mm. Um, I think it got a little bigger at one point. And there, apparently there's a movie about this which is not very accurate. But um, there is a book that is extremely accurate. And I read that. And when she played her violin, which um, luckily, you know, it's a very strange phenomenon that the the Nazi officers who were gassing people every day and murdering people on a daily basis and hundreds of thousands of people um, liked music, you know, I mean, and they wanted entertainment. And so they, if they were prisoners who could play, they made them play, you know, whenever they wanted to, but they, they kept them alive so that they would have live music. It's kind of a, an amazing and hard hmm. to fathom story. So she kept a lot of other people alive by keeping that orchestra rehearsing and at a certain level and, and trying to schedule performances. And so she really worked at that. When she played her violin, there was a nurse there who said, who was a friend of hers. And she wasn't a nurse for to help people. I mean, that's just happened to be her profession. Oh, okay. And she said, um, when, when your violin plays, it's like, it's saying I too bleed and hope for beauty. That's where I got the title from. Hmm. And so in writing that piece, I found a kind of story trajectory to tell, which is that I, I knew that it would begin with this, uh, a mixture of two things, this mechanistic sense of moving towards, um, death, you know, because it was mm-hmm. the whole Nazi mechanism was very uh, mechanical. Um, right. 
And so there was this sense of train music and of, of something that you're caught in a web that you can't get out of. So I, in order to do that, I, I decided that the music should be heterophonic so that all the parts link together and that the, uh, a single line is spread among the instruments in a way that makes you feel like you can't get out of the situation. Mm. Um, I also took a few pieces, some of which is hard to recognize, like um, Traumarai, which she played over and over. Uh, actually, no, another prisoner played Traumarai over and over on her cello. Uh, and I put a little bit of trauma right in there in such a way as it's almost impossible to hear it. I really kind of did it for myself. Uh, okay. And I, I put it in there in a very disturbing, distorted way. So it, it, it kept, it gave me vocabulary and things to use. When I told the orchestra that and they heard it, it, it caused it quite a scene because they had been playing it and not realizing it. And they were very moved and almost afraid that, that they didn't catch that and that it was something oh. that really got to them when they realized what they were doing. Oh. Um, and then uh, I stopped at one point and suddenly the music is about her being a violinist. And there's a very brief quote from a, a, a waltz that she played a lot because she was in a popular group. And then at the end, and there are a lot of violin solos that represent her. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there are many moments where cadenzas and, and melodic gestures that are supposed to be her. And at the very end, this actually the most, the part I'm most pleased with what happened compositionally is the very end because I wrote basically three endings at the same time because I couldn't decide. And then I thought, I bet they can fit together, which is one of the violins soaring up high, you know, with some sense of hope and Uh and beauty and uh, this kind of uh, a harmonic world that also had something positive and hopeful, but then also a very dark, tragic sounding harmony. And I had them all unfold on top of each other. And you can hear that. And some of the members of the orchestra and the conductor also told me that they had never heard what they called multiple endings, you know, simultaneous endings. Right. Yeah. I, I, I felt like that was, again, that is the result of trying to tell the story. And that's Mm -hmm. basically my process is I know what I'm trying to say in music. So I try to find musical ways to do that. Mm -hmm. So even if it's like an abstract piece or a fun piece for kids or whatever it is, I feel like I'm telling some kind of story. And what is the music doing to further the story? How is Mm -hmm. it? Is it, is it an energy thing? Is it a harmonic thing? Is there a motif that represents something? Uh, Is this a place where counterpoint is necessary because more than one thing is going on, you know? So it's really trying to tell the story. Yeah. And I, I especially love that because my piano teacher when I was in high school was, she was Jewish. She's from Ukraine and her teacher was also in a death camp during the, during World War II. And she would tell me stories whenever I'd get frustrated or when I wasn't doing something right. And she would say, no, 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 you need to remember why you're doing this. And she would tell me about her teacher who the only thing that kept him alive during the Holocaust was practicing in his mind, like playing the piano. And, And so and I, so when I listened to your piece, I, it reminded me of that, that hope that was there, but yeah, but yeah. underneath it all, there was always that, that conflict of, I guess, the machine, the Nazi machine that yeah. you were talking about. Yeah. Well, so you. it was quite a story. Yeah. 
yeah, it was very, it was very profound. It was a very moving experience for me to, to listen to that. So, um, so going back to a lighter topic, (laughs) (laughs) um, but the, the way you were talking about taking this idea and telling a story and, and developing it, I've talked to a few composers and a theme and a thought that keeps coming back through a lot of these composers is this quote, and I quote it, every musical motif, every chord progression, every musical idea that you can imagine has in fact been done before, but the creativity comes in doing it your own way. And I was wondering what your thoughts are about that. Well, you know, again, you have no idea how happy I am you asked that question. And on that happy teaser, we will take a pause in my conversation with Bruce Adolph. Next time, we will hear Bruce's response to my question about originality, and we'll dive deeper into creativity and discuss how we as performers can exercise that creativity while still being true to the composer's intentions. And Bruce gives some wise advice to those just starting out in their musical career. I hope that you enjoyed listening to this first part of my interview with Bruce Adolph and that you'll join us in the next episode for the rest. Musicians vs. the World is a production of Frosted Lens Entertainment in conjunction with Smith Sound Music. Today's episode was hosted by me, Christine Smith, and produced by Russ Wilkes. A special thanks to Bruce Adolph for sharing his time, his music, and his expertise with us today. And in today's episode, you heard Einstein's Light, Bending of Space-Time, performed by Joshua Bell and Maria Stroke, and I Too Bleed and Hope for Beauty, performed by Alistair Willis and the River Oaks Chamber Orchestra. Both pieces were composed by Bruce Adolph and shared with his permission. If you have enjoyed today's podcast, please be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on any future conversations. And if you want to help us reach more people that may be interested in today's topic, please share this episode with them or leave us a nice review wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have any topics you'd like to be discussed or questions about music or musician life that you'd like answered, please reach out to us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook, or send us an email at info at Thanks so much.